and a way of modeling that in a significant way for those who feel comfortable. If you need to be prayed for today, I'd invite you to be seated. Um, and if you want someone to pray for you and you sit down, that I would encourage those near them to just put a kind of hand on their shoulder to say, hey, I'm with you in this, whatever you're going through, and I'm praying for you. And today, if you just sense a need that you would love to be prayed for, we'd encourage you to do that in these moments. Um, we join with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning praying for those who are seated in these moments, those who just need to recognize your love for them and know that they are not alone. We continue to pray for those who are a part of us in many ways. We think today especially of little Matthew. We pray for his life, that you watch over him, but we know Matthew is just one of many kids who call this home. And so we want to invest in each of them. So Father, we pray today that we will be the kind of people help people make significant decisions in their lives to follow you because they know your love and they know they are loved. We pray today especially for Brent Doyle and for Dave and Kim as they continue to pray for his recovery and so we continue to lift him up to you. We pray, we know we've had many who have had surgery or are having surgery in the days and weeks that have passed and are coming and so we pray for, for healing for all of those. And we pray in these moments, we begin to wrap our minds around this idea that you really are for us and for our families and for our future and for this community. And we try to articulate that with simple phrase that you're for the lakeshore. And so, Father, we hope that that becomes something that makes sense in our hearts and our minds and our lives, that resonates with us and through us and around us because of what you have done and continue to do. So, Father, it's this morning that we want to give our attention to you. And so we pray that somehow through this conversation today that you would speak in a way that kind of messes with maybe what we think or believe in a good way. So Father, we pray that you would help those who are followers of you here today, that we would find ourselves committed to you and living out of a place of love so that our community looks radically different by our lives. So help us today, Father, to be all that you're calling us to be. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A couple things I want to mention real quick this morning. Um, Coming up at the end of the month is a fifth Sunday, and so that Sunday we are partnering with the rescue mission in town, uh, both the men and women's shelter, and um, because we're for the Lakeshore, we're for them as well. And so on that Sunday, next week, you'll have opportunity to sign up to to be engaged in helping at the rescue mission, and so we'd love for you to be a part of that on that Sunday. Um, We'll be meeting here briefly that morning, but we really hope you'll think about serving in some significant way in our community. And so if we run out of spots to serve there, we will find another place for you to serve. Um, But that's really what we hope that you'll begin to see, that we're for the Lakeshore, we're for you and we're for your future and your family. Uh, And so one of the things that you'll notice in in the foyer, there's some some new places to sign up and look at stuff, but but we have a section that's just called Next Steps, because we think everybody is on a spiritual journey in some way, and we all take a next step in some direction. And so those steps look different. So whether it's to attend regularly, to invite someone, whether it's to join a group, or to give generously, whatever that looks like in your own life, we encourage you to take your next step spiritually, and we hope you'll begin to, to evaluate and wrestle with where you are in that. And so today we begin a new series that, that will take us 10 weeks to complete, and it is um, a series in some ways that I am, I'm excited about, but also have wrestled with some. And so uh, we, we, it's one of the reasons we want you to join a group, and we'll be talking more about life groups launching here in just a few weeks, because We think sometimes conversation together is important. So at the end of today, in fact, at the end of every week of this series, I'm just going to hang out for a few minutes up here. And if you want to talk about what we talked about 
this morning. Um, I'm just going to be here to have a conversation. Um, but one of the things that I noticed when I was growing up in church, and I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I felt like you couldn't wrestle or have doubts with faith. Like, in other words, if someone told you this is what you have to believe, you couldn't question that, you couldn't wrestle with that, you couldn't decide if maybe there was another way to view that or if that was the only way. And so I began to wrestle with stuff at a young age, and I found out later on that I wasn't alone in this. In fact, I began to notice that lots of people wrestle with questions of faith or belief or what do they do with that. And so I began to wrestle with lots of significant things to me. Like, is everything in the Bible literal or figurative? Like, how did stuff happen? Like, Jonah, is that a literal or figurative story? You know, what do we do with Noah's Ark? What do we do with some of these things? In fact, what, as I got older, I said, what do I do with, like, this resurrected Jesus? The idea that a guy came back to life and didn't die again. Like, I, I mean, I've seen people who are resuscitated, right? Like, that's coming back to life. But we believe he didn't die, right? This is a unique set of beliefs if you call yourself a Christian, Right? We believe some things that are, you wrestle with and you wonder, and what if there are things in that that wrestling is okay? And so we're borrowing this series, I'm borrowing the title straight from Mark Clark's book, The Problem of God, because there's a reality of we don't know what to do with some things. And so his book and Timothy Keller and others have informed some of these conversations. And so what I began to hear both inside and outside the church is like faith and science can't go together. They don't work you can't wrestle through the miracles or the resurrection of Jesus because that's just not okay. I mean, have you ever wrestled with these things? Have you ever had doubts? Have you wondered how you reconcile a good God with evil in the world? Have you wondered how you begin to have faith when you see things around you that are broken? See, my hope and my prayer is over these next several weeks, over these 10 weeks together, that you'll realize the church, if it hasn't always been, it should be, and hopefully we become better, the place where we can wrestle with conversations that are hard. This should be the safest place to do that, and I apologize that sometimes it hasn't been. In other words, I want to say it this way, and this, these words will actually be on the screen. At the end of the day, we can never prove having faith is the right way to go. Faith, by definition, cannot be proved. But what if, at the end of the day, it makes the most sense? Can't prove faith. I mean, there's a reason we call it faith. It takes a leap of faith to believe it. I mean, at some level, there is a leap of faith in choosing to become a follower of Jesus. That's always true. But what we'll probably begin to see over time is that all of us believe in something, we make a distinctive decision to believe in something in some way. And so I hope that over these next few weeks, we'll begin to see, does this way of life make the most sense to me, to my family, to our future? In fact, we hope that for some people who are wrestling with what they believe at all, it'll be an opportunity to say, you know what, I've wrestled with that, I've wondered about that. It's okay. Or maybe you'll begin to see that we don't have to view things through certain lenses, but we can see them differently. So here's what I mean. So we're talking about science today. And what do we do with science and faith? And so I, I was thinking back over my life. I remember going to a high school biology class and they talked about evolution. I didn't know what to do with that because my mom told me that we don't believe in evolution. So I went home and said, Mom, here's what the science teacher says. She goes, well, we don't believe that. And that was the end of the conversation. I knew it could go no further. She made that clear. It didn't really settle it in my mind, if I'm really honest. Because what I do is science and some of this other stuff. And so I didn't know what to do with that. So I kind of just put it in a box and thought, okay, well, here's how this must work. That if you're going to be intellectually honest, your faith goes in one area and your intellectual honesty goes in another area, and so you can just keep them separate and it's okay. I mean, I knew there were really smart people 
who were Christians, and I just thought they'd figured stuff out that I didn't quite get. So that's where I left it. Then I went off to college. I went to a Christian college, and, and I took this class because I'd take one lab science. And so I took astronomy because I thought we'd just go to the planetarium and look at stars, and that'd be like kind of it. I mean, it was like, this sounds like a cake class. I'm all in. Let's do this. Until I realized there's way more in astronomy than just looking at stars. Um, they said that's astrology and it's not a science. I said, oh, uh, no wonder I should have taken this class. So in astronomy, I had this professor who he, he opened every class with kind of a faith lesson. And he shared his story about the way Jesus had changed his heart and his life. And I heard all this stuff about him. And, and I actually went to church with him. And so I got to know him a little bit. And so I knew he was a man of deep faith in Jesus. And then one day he's talking in class and he begins talking about the universe. And talking about how the universe expands rapidly at all times. And how it's this incredible way that God is at work. And it all started with a bang. And God is doing this incredible thing. And some kid raised his hand in class. And I, I can see him, but I can't remember his name. But he was ready to argue and fight. And that's what happened for the next 20 minutes. And these two went at it. And the professor was really gracious. And the student was not. Um, I'll never forget the conversation back and forth. And it was loud and he ended up walking out and and he says so you're telling me you think that God did this with a bang and he goes I think it's probable that that's how God did it he said but I can't say with certainty and this kid was livid he goes but the Bible says he says yeah the Bible says God created you're right absolutely and so I left this conversation we're going to talk a little bit more about that but I left this conversation going what do we do with this can can science and faith go together or or does it take intellectual honesty to keep them separate? I mean, do they exist in the same spheres? And so like right now, if you don't like school in some ways, you might not like the next five or ten minutes, but that's okay. Bear with me for the whole thing. But, but I begin to wrestle with, well, how do we live out of this place of faith and science? And where did this idea that they're enemies come from? And so what is it about, like, how, when did we begin to say science is against faith? And that hasn't historically been true, by the way. The church really was the proponent of science for much of human history, post, what, 33 AD? But what we began to find is in the middle of all this that somehow faith and science were pushed at odds. In fact, I'm going to quote from Mark Clark's book. Here's what he says. This is how we often start caricatures of this conversation. So he's talking about there's some television show, and this would be the phrase. Tonight we'll be talking faith versus science. Our first guest is a former University of Oxford professor, evolutionary biologist, and best-selling author. He believes that science, not faith, holds the answer to all questions. On the other side of the aisle, we have Joe Smith, who will speak for the legitimacy of faith and Christianity. Joe homeschools his kids, thinks Oprah is the Antichrist, and lives in a swamp. Joe and the professor represent the widely embraced caricatures of the opposing sides of the faith-science debate. Have you noticed how we do this? This is what happens in all these conversations. We get like the least educated people. Like, no, there's a guy who runs a place in Cincinnati. I'm leaving names out, but he only has a bachelor's degree in biology, and we look to him as a figure of science. Bad call, right? I mean, like, we begin to do this kind of stuff, and we think this is the person we should look to, when in reality there are people that are better. But what if we got rid of the caricatures for a minute, we had honest conversation, and we had to look at things critically and see competing voices and what that begins to do. Today, some of you have already wrestled with some of this stuff, and you know what you believe, but others of us in this room are still wrestling, trying to decide, what do I actually believe? And so I want to say this. Let's begin with this myth. Faith is based on hopeful thinking and legend. 
Science is based on a search for objective evidence that leads humanity forward. Let me read that again. This is a myth that faith is based on hopeful thinking and legend. Science is based on a search for objective evidence that leads humanity forward. But if that's the myth, what's the truth? The truth is this. The truth is usually found in the both and, in this case, of faith and science working together rather than either or choices presented to us time and time again when the two are mutually exclusive. In other words, faith and science aren't at odds. In fact, I sat through several lectures in graduate school on this same topic that, that they really are two sides of the same coin. At the end of the day, both want to find truth. Both try to answer questions of origin and meaning and life. And so what if in the middle of that, that the struggle for some of us, if we've heard that you can't believe both in faith and science, what if that's just wrong? What if you can believe in God? God is creator, God is love, God is this infinite being found in Jesus. What if we can believe in that and believe that biology has some truth to speak into our life? And for those of you who took medicine in the last couple days, you believe it exists. Science matters. But often we think that science is against faith. And so that's, that's been furthered, this idea of modern secularism. In other words, this idea that the smarter we get in science, the more it disproves faith. In other words, the more we know, the more we realize that we don't need to look for answers to the origin of the universe because we already know them. And so there's a few guys, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and others, who, who really push this view that meaning, morality, destiny, science answers those questions. So a couple quotes from each of them. Richard Dawkins says this, Faith is like a mental illness, a great cop-out to evade the need to think and evaluate. Sam Harris says this, We have names for people who have many beliefs, for which there is no rational justification. When their beliefs are extremely common, we call them religious. Otherwise, they're likely to be called mad, delusional, or psychotic. But the reality is, this is not the norm. Once again, we go back to the idea of we, we create cartoons of people. So Merriam-Webster defines science in this way. Science is knowledge about or study of the natural world based on facts learned through experiments and observation. In other words, finding truth in the world around us. Science's goal is to find truth in the world around us, but, but the reality for us is that many scientists acknowledge they can't disprove God. In fact, most acknowledge that. In fact, what you're finding even today is there's actually a, a greater percentage of scientists who are becoming followers of God in some way, shape, or form because they can't answer certain questions through science itself. In fact, there's a Harvard professor named Stephen Jay Gould who, who developed this NOMA principle, and basically it just means this, that science can't prove, or physics specifically, can't prove that there can't be some metaphysical God out there, that something other than the physical realm could exist. Science can't disprove that. He doesn't believe in faith, but he believes that I can't disprove faith or God exists. And there's a guy named Alan Rex Sanders, who's the greatest cosmologist maybe ever. And so cosmology is just a study of the origins of the universe. Like, how did stuff come to be? And so he begins to talk about how he became a follower of Jesus because he couldn't answer questions. And as he began to search more and as he studied more, it kept leading him more and more to this place where he says, it's, not, it's my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than can be explained by science. 
So the question becomes, where did this divide exist? How did science and faith get pitted against one another? And the truth is, we go back to this kind of philosophy, actually. It was the Enlightenment. If you know anything about philosophy, you know the Enlightenment was the period in time that the 18th, 19th century, we began to believe that we could answer every question that humanity faces because we're just so smart, right? Like, this is what people, we are smart enough to do this. So out of enlightenment, out of philosophy itself, we begin to wrestle and believe that we can find the answers to all of human life, all of humans' problems through our intelligence because we are smart enough to do that. So it was not really science that put faith and science at odds, but philosophy, in fact, the more we learn about science and the more we learn about faith, the more we learn how they're interconnected in some ways. And what we learn about scientific method only allows for natural occurrences, natural causes. So in other words, it can't disprove faith. That's philosophical thought that leads to the disproving of faith. And so this guy named Alvin Platinga, I mean, he, he went to Calvin and then he went to some school in Ann Arbor that no one really cares about. Um, and then he went to Yale. Um, just saying what you were all thinking. And he went to the school, and he's a really smart guy. In fact, he began to change philosophy at several schools and chairs and departments all around the country. In fact, there was a, um, another philosopher named Quentin Smith who complained of Christians taking over philosophy departments at all kinds of universities because Alvin Platinga argued for faith at such a high level that other philosophers go, man, I can't disprove that, so I'm in. In other words, this guy was so smart. It's not because he went to U of M, by the way. I might give him Calvin or Yale, but I'm not going to give the one in the middle. Um, and so his philosophy was at such a high level, he began to change the way philosophy was seen in the academic world. So almost overnight, it became intellectually wise to believe in some kind of God. So Alistair McGrath, who's a guy who, who writes a lot of theology, but the interesting thing is he's a PhD in biophysics, if you know anything about physics, you know that you don't understand it. Um, like, that's how physics works. None of us get it. Other than I know if something falls, it keeps falling because there's gravity. And anyway, um, but what he begins to say is that Alistair McGrath points out that historically, scientists over and over again, no major historian of science thinks that faith and science are in conflict. At the end of the day, they may choose not to believe, but even argues that people become atheists not because that science disproves faith, but usually for other reasons, like people in the church were mean to them. Right? Like, it's not usually that science leads into being atheists. It's other things in life. It's what I do with evil, or does God even exist? It's not questions of science. It's questions of other things. In fact, what, what we begin to see, and I, I've got a list I'm not going to read to you, but there's about 10 things in Scripture that as you look through, they lead us to want to do more scientific study, not less. They push us to try to, to wrestle for truth and answers and wrestling in such a way that, that maybe we can find a better way to understand the way God is at work in the world around us or if there is a God at work in the world around us. So the Bible itself leans in that direction. But it leaves us with this question. We live in a world where there's always a winner and a loser. There's a protagonist and an antagonist, and they are pitted against one another. And one has to be the winner. What if faith in science, there is no protagonist, no antagonist. What if, rather, it's two things working together from two different directions? See, it's one thing to say that science is only equipped to test for natural causes and can't speak for others. It's quite a different thing to say that science proves that no other cause could possibly exist. 
So it leads back to the question I mentioned earlier. What about creation and evolution? These two spheres that seem to be on opposite sides of a conversation. Like people think, what if I'd said to you today, and I believe this, and actually the Church of Nazarene affirms this, what if you could be a Christian and believe in evolution? Some of you never knew that. I didn't know that until I was in college. I didn't know that was even a possibility. So what I want to say to this, whether you believe in some form of theistic evolution or whether you believe in a literal six-day creation, both can be validly true. Because at the end of the day, the argument we make is that we believe God is creator. So here's how I want to talk about this. This idea that, that you can believe in one. So this idea of philosophical naturalism. In other words, everything has a natural cause and there's nothing divine in the middle of those natural causes in the world. In other words, we believe in survival of the fittest. That's a kind of evolution that would exist that doesn't allow for God to be at work in it. See, I remember when I was in college, there was a guy who actually ironically was going to go to med school, had a degree in biology, and now is a pastor. Um, but at the time, he, he, was, he believed in God, but he believed in this way that evolution had to have worked, that God somehow allows for survival of the fittest because that's who God is. So evil is by itself survival of the fittest. And what I said was, well, I think it's probably more of a heart issue and it's sinful than that. And so we begin to wrestle like science and faith have to be at odds, right? They can't be two sides of the same coin. In fact, Francis Collins leads the Human Genome Project. He wrote a book called The Language of God. And in the book, he says this. Evolution as a biological mechanism makes sense, but he rejects philosophical naturalism. In other words, Beauty and order point to a divine creator. So what if, what if the Bible and creation, what if we could see it even from a different lens? So here's what I would say to you this morning. There are kind of two sides of this. People look and they go, well, well the Bible says God created in literally six days and that's what happened. Okay, that's fine. We can believe that to be true. Or the other side of this is that God did some kind of evolution and then he backed away. That's called deism. In fact, that's what many of the American fathers believe was that God started things and then backed away. So both of these are the polar opposites that you can believe in. But what if God did large-scale acts in the middle? And you go, well, the Bible says in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, you're right. If you read both stories, there are two different views, by the way. Genesis 1 says here in six days or, or six periods of time, here's what God did. Day one, separate out light and dark. Day two, on and on it goes. Chapter 2, if you read it, God actually functions in a little bit of a different way. So the question we're left with is, did God contradict himself? Did Moses, when he wrote this book, did he contradict himself? Or is there another way for us to maybe understand this? And that's where I'd say, well, let's look at two other examples. We could look at Judges chapter 4 and 5. In Judges chapter 4, there's this war that Israel wins. And in Judges chapter 5, Deborah sings this song about the idea that the stars were fighting. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure stars don't fight. Last I checked, I've never seen that happen. She's singing a song. We go to Exodus chapters 14 and 15, and this, this Exodus out of Egypt in one, there's this idea that this kind of here's what happened in the battle. In chapter 15, it's this song about this battle that took place. In other words, what we see all throughout the Old Testament several times is there's kind of this kind of more literal interpretation and then kind of our song or our prayer about what may have taken place. So what if Genesis 1 and 2 really is saying this? In Genesis 1, this is, the, this is the poetic version of God's creation. In Genesis 2, God created in this way. Like I said to you, at the end of the day, I, I think it really is a side issue whether God is creator or not. I, I'm, I'm going to rephrase that. That's not what I meant to say. 
that's a misspeak. Um, at the end of the day, whether you believe in some form of deistic or theistic evolution or whether you believe in literal six-day creation, it's a side issue at the end of the day. What we're asking you to possibly believe is, is it possible that God is creator? And if God is creator, what does that then look like? What if faith and science aren't at odds? What if in the middle of this, we begin to see that, that all throughout the scriptures, God is pointing us in such a way to bring us towards him? So that, this is why I had this one as a slide. So I, I, in truth, we believe that how God created is a side issue. It's the belief that God is creator that matters. Like that's why I literally wrote it down so I wouldn't screw that up. <laughs> that's what happens when you don't read your notes. Like I don't use them, I try not to. So, um, but even when we look like in the Bible, if you were to look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 17, it says that people saw Jesus resurrected and they still doubted. I think that's there on purpose. I think it's okay to have doubt and wrestle with our faith. In fact, I think if we don't, sometimes we're just not honest with ourselves. But at the end of the day, it seems more probable than not that there must be a God who exists. And so here's what I want to say. Everyone believes in something and makes assumptions about reality that can't be proven even through science. In other words, we all believe in something what are you or I going to choose to believe in? Everything in our life is filtered through a worldview. We all have our upbringing, our finances, our parents, our neighbors, our coworkers, our education, what we watch on television or read on the newspaper or online. All of it shapes our understanding of the world. Every one of us has a worldview that's been shaped by things outside of our control. That's the reality for all of us. But what shaped that worldview? What brings us to the place we believe what we believe? So here's an example that we'll sometimes hear. Maybe if you work in a hospital, you've heard someone say something like this. When someone's taken off life support, someone will say, well, at least they don't have to suffer anymore. Maybe you've heard that. We actually don't know that, right? Unless you have some kind of faith background or you know what the future holds, we don't know if they're suffering or non-suffering after death. We don't know. But it's a faith assumption to say they're not going to suffer anymore. Now, I, I tend to believe that in many ways, at least in not that moment. But it's our worldview that shapes our understanding. It helps us begin to try to answer where we are and what we're believing. So what then, if we all have a faith position and we're just trying to decide how we're going to live out of that faith position? In other words, we all have faith, but what is it in? See, I think we all want to answer four basic questions. This is not new. I mean, lots of people talk about these four basic questions. It's who am I? In other words, like what, what's the point of humanity? Why do I exist? Where am I? Like what, what's going on in the world around me? What, what's the point of the universe? What's wrong? I mean, it doesn't take much effort to look around us and see that there's brokenness around the world in which we live. And then we kind of really do ask this question, what's the remedy or what saves us from the brokenness? Like we begin to wrestle with this and we say, really, this is the question we ask. Who am I? Where am I? What's wrong? And what's the remedy? I mean, today, some of us in this room have a great sense of faith in Jesus, and that's a good thing. But sometimes we struggle to have an understanding of why others don't. And that isn't the good thing. Recognizing that doubt can be a reality. The reality is for some of us that we all believe in something, but... 
But doubts in of themselves are simply a commitment to some other kind of belief. We have to believe in something. We all do it, whether we want to acknowledge that or not. But what if even the Bible itself points us to a direction? What if it points us to the idea that maybe there is an intelligent creator who loves us and lovingly points us to him over and over again? And what if science points us in that direction? So I'm reading this morning. Um, I won't ask you to stand because some of you are already asleep. I'm reading from Romans chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Paul writes these words, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, what Paul's saying is this, that from the beginning God has created in such a way that it all points towards him. Have you ever spent time, like I, I know one of the things, and I, it's one of my favorite things to do is to bring friends or family when they come visit for the first time and we'll drive down, down Sherman, Sherman Boulevard and then you know that curve right by that park that I can never remember the name of. Um, what? Not Cruise Park, the other one, the little one. Whatever it is, I don't know. Um, I drive by it all the time. But, but when you come around that curve and you see the lake for the first time, I love seeing the reaction of people in the car who've never seen Lake Michigan, like really seen it. Every time they do this, they go, oh, it's bigger than I thought. Every time. They're like, this looks like an ocean. Yes, it's not. It's a lake. It's much smaller than an ocean. I'm, I mean, like every single time I take someone there, that's the reaction that happens. Every time they go, this is prettier than I thought too. Like, I, I get it now. Like, always that's the reaction of what happens. Because there's something in nature itself, something in science and the natural order of the world that points us to something more. I remember on our honeymoon, we went, we went to Hawaii on our honeymoon, and we got off the airplane, and we're driving this rental car to the hotel, and I remember looking out to my left and knowing that I can see for as far as I can see, and I know nothing. And it was right as the sun was going down, and I had this one thought, we're in the middle of nowhere. If this island goes down, we're done. Like, that was my thought. I mean, that was not a good thought, but I also, the second after that, my thought was, like, this is remarkable. This is really incredible. As far as I can see, that nothing I can really conceptually understand. This is what Paul is trying to say here to the church in Rome. Like, so somehow God has been pointing the way and the direction to him through all kinds of ways. And so science and faith are not at odds. They invite us to see the same God who is creator and the fullness of God's creation and his love is seen in the person of Jesus. And sure, around us we see brokenness. That's not hard to find. But what if in God's divine love, he not only wants to restore our hearts and our minds and our lives, but he wants to restore all of creation because that's what even the book of Revelation tells us, that there'll be a new heavens, new earth, God's restoration of all things. He wants to redeem and restore and make all things new. And so science continues to point us in a direction that says, look at these microorganisms because they too point us to God. So maybe we do well to not argue about, I will say dumb things, sorry, um, we argue about dumb things in terms of faith. In fact, I want us to, to hear this. God constantly woos us through what he made, stars, trees, and microorganisms. He constantly preaches at us saying, I want to know you. Here I am. Can I also say today, I understand if you wrestle with this. 
I understand if you're like me growing up and you came home and said, hey, what about biology, mom? What about evolution? Your mom goes, stop talking. I mean, like, I get it. I love my mother. I hope she doesn't listen to this. Um, she might. She does some weeks, so we'll find out later. She'll call me and let me know. But what I want to say to you, I believe with all that I am today, that there had to have been intelligent design to the world, and I believe God is the creator who created and so what if in the middle of science, the science points us to God's divine love? What if somehow in the middle of this, we live in a world that all of this points us to hope? I mean, I think Paul and I want to say the same thing today, that even if it doesn't make sense scientifically, Jesus is the remedy to the problem. And we wrestle with the questions of where am I and who am I and what's wrong with this world and what's the remedy? What if the hope is Jesus? That's where Paul is pointing the church in Rome. It's where I hope to point us today. At the end of the day, faith and science are not at odds, but they're both seeking the same thing, truth. And so our hope is as we spend these next 10 weeks wrestling with these conversations, sometimes you may, you may bristle against something I say, and that's okay. That's why we'll create space for conversation because the church should be the place where doubt and conversation are welcome without throwing daggers at one another. We are called to be that people in the middle of all that. So this morning, I want to say this. Next week, we're going to talk about the idea, because could God really even exist? And so I hope you'll think about whether these 10 weeks, if there's one of these weeks that, that, that you're looking forward to or you want to invite someone to, bring them. Let's have a conversation, because at the end of the day, we believe God wants to restore his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So in fact, we're going to ask the praise team to come back as I, as I pray they're going to come. And, and they're going to come back and we're going to see build your kingdom here because we desperately believe God's, the metaphysical part of the world, the, the other part that we can't understand, God wants to break into the here and now. And so we see heaven come to earth in a way that is beyond our comprehension. And so there may not be a problem of God in terms of faith and science, we hope. Father, we thank you this morning for the way in which you have come near to us for the way in which you love us, for the way in which you give us words that Paul writes in Romans here, that he wants us to know that really since the beginning of all creation, you have pointed us in a direction that somehow God's divine handprint has been on the world around us. And so what if, what if the reality for us is that whether we believe in kind of a literal six-day understanding of the scriptures or whether we believe in some kind of theistic evolution, what if at the end of the day it doesn't really matter unless we, as long as we believe in you? That God loves us enough that created us in such a way that he wants us to know his love and to recognize that for much of life, the various studies of the world, they don't push us away from God, but they bring us towards. Help us to understand in so many ways that we don't often have to defend God because God doesn't need defending, that he is and he was and he always will be. And then in Jesus, he gives hope and love. And he invites his church to the reflection of this hope and love. So maybe, if nothing else, maybe we'll do a better job of pointing people towards you by the way that we live and the way that we love. And so as we prepare to sing these words, build your kingdom here, may heaven break into the everyday. So may it be the metaphysical world, the other world that breaks into this physical realm because of the way your church functions in this world. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing with us this morning? Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray, unfair.